Good afternoon. Thank you for joining us for the Evangelife discussion. We'll go ahead and get started with the first here. Uh, it says, this is a question about praying for people to receive the Holy Spirit. So this alludes to the idea that as seen in the book of Acts, people are typically prayed for when they receive the Spirit. We don't believe that that always happens. I received the Spirit by myself. A lot of people receive the Spirit by themselves, but typically it seems like it's, it's a good pattern. It's a, it's a good practice that people are prayed for to receive the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So the person asks, is it necessary to feel the witness of the Spirit when praying over someone to be filled with the Spirit? And is this a confirmation that they have received it? Especially when it is unclear if the one seeking has actually been filled. So, well, I guess if we start in the Bible, uh, which is probably the best place to start, um, I'm not thinking of any places where we're instructed to look for the witness of the Spirit. I, I think I, I think I know what someone's saying when they use that term, uh, that there would be something inside of us who have the Holy Spirit that would resonate when the Spirit is at work, and you can feel those things many times, but uh, we're not instructed much about the witness of the Spirit, but we, we are told explicitly in a couple of places, one of which I think you're looking up, uh, how they knew when someone had been filled with the Holy Spirit. And it, it, they say explicitly that we knew they were filled with the Spirit, for we heard them speak with other tongues. This is the sign that is consistently pointed to throughout the book of Acts when we see these infillings taking place. That's what the Scripture tells us is how they knew. Amen. We knew God gave them the same gift as He gave us, for we heard them speak with other tongues. That's it. So that's, that's the sign that the Lord has given. Feelings are subjective, but He has said that everyone who is born of the Spirit, a sound will occur. You will hear its sound. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit in John 3. And then we are told that when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you will receive power in Acts 1 and 5 and wait in the city until you until you do receive power in Luke 24 49 and then we are told exactly what that sound is when the day of Pentecost had fully come they were all together of one mind and one accord and suddenly there came from heaven a sound as of a mighty rushing wind filled the whole house where they were sitting and there appeared to them divided tongues as a fire one resting on each of them and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues and when this sound occurred this sound of speaking in tongues the people marveled but Peter said this is what was spoken of by the prophet Joel in the last days I will pour out my spirit the this that he is referring to is the never-before-seen phenomenon of speaking in tongues. Which he this, calls this which you see and hear. Yes. Yeah. Okay, so God has poured forth this which you both see and hear. So it changes people. It's a visible infilling and it's an audible infilling. So any model of the Holy Spirit's infilling that is neither visible or audible, we would question whether it is biblical. And so one of the best verses is, is Acts 10. Um, it says, while Peter, this is Peter speaking to Cornelius, um, and, and he's been sent to speak words by which he and his household will be saved. It says, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. Notice it does not say the gift of tongues fell on them. It says the Holy Spirit fell on them. All the circumcised believers who came with Peter were shocked, amazed, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. Notice he does not say the gift of tongues had been poured out. That's a special gift, not what we're talking about here. He says the <coughs> gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also, for they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. They knew that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out, 
because, that's what that four word means, because they were hearing them speaking with tongues. Then Peter answered, Surely no one can refuse water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did. Notice he does not say who have received the gift of tongues. The gift of tongues is not for everybody. That's something special that comes on, on a member to give a message to the church for public edification. But the gift of the Holy Spirit with the personal experience of the sign of speaking in unknown tongues, that's for everybody. Because Peter said the promise is for you and for your children and for all those who are far off. So that's what he's saying here in Acts 10. They knew it because they heard something. And that he doesn't say God gave them the gift of tongues. He said God gave them the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then when he goes to tell it again to the church in the next chapter, they're asking him how did this how do you know, you know, why did you do this? Why did you baptize them? And he describes it in similar terms. He says, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them as upon us at the beginning, <laughs> indicating this was the same thing that happened in Acts chapter two. Then I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If therefore God gave them the same gift as He gave us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand God? When they heard these things, they became silent and they glorified God, saying, Then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance unto life. Amen. Meaning that they had been born. <laughs> Amen. So it's called the baptism. It's called the outpouring. This is what Joel said, I'll pour out. It's called the receiving or the infilling. Mm -hmm. And Paul shows us that it is the rebirth. Because in Galatians 3 and 4, he says that those who are born are born according to promise. Those who are born according to the Spirit are born according to promise. But promise is the word Jesus used to describe the day of Pentecost, the outpouring of the Spirit. Wait in the city until you receive the promise of my Father. This is what the, this promise is for you, Peter said. This is the exceedingly great and precious promises through which we become partakers of the divine nature. And the promise that's mentioned in uh, Hebrews 11. Yes. All of these from the Old Testament died in faith, not having received the promise, God having reserved something better for us that they not be perfected without us. So it's, the language of promise is consistent through the Bible. So when Paul is using that language, and connects it directly to birth and the Spirit, we can, we can rest assured that's what he's talking about. Amen. And this would, of course, then harmonize what Jesus goes on to say, or, or begins with in John 3, rather, when yes. he goes on to talk about being born of the Spirit and yes. you hear its sound, yes. he's talking about, he, he puts it in terms of a birth. Amen. There is some attempt, we're mentioning this because there is some attempt by some to to separate these things, that there's right. a birth in the Spirit and then there's a baptism in the Spirit, or right. then there's an infilling, or then there's the gift of the Spirit, and these are all one and the same. Right. That's the most harmonious way to see the Scriptures. Yes. It's not a second work of grace. It's not a second blessing. It's the full immersion. And it doesn't mean that you haven't received some experience of the Spirit before that. It doesn't mean that the Spirit is foreign to you or that He's never guided your life or moved on you. But there is a difference between getting your finger wet with water and being totally immersed into this water. And that's, that's the difference, immersion. It's not getting wet, it's immersion. So when Jesus tells them uh, in John 14, he says, he's speaking of the Comforter, the Holy Spirit who is to come, and he says he's gonna lead you into all truth and, and so on and so forth. And, he, and he, he does not say, this is something brand new and strange, you've never experienced this before. Instead, he says, speaking about the Spirit, you know him. You know him because he has been with you, but he will be in you. Yeah. He goes on and says, I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. So he was trying to tell them the spirit's not foreign to you. Peter had cast out demons and worked with the 70 to heal the sick. And he had, he had confessed Jesus was the son of God. And he had done mighty things for the Lord. And yet he had not been baptized in the Holy Spirit as occurred in, in the book of Acts yeah. on the day of Pentecost. And there was a major change that happened in Peter's life from a man of powerful intentions and a, and a calling from God to a man 
with the power of the Spirit. And from a man shivering and scared at Caiaphas's courtyard to a man's taking his stand with the rest and proclaiming the first sermon of the church, something seminal shifted. This man was anointed by the Holy Spirit. We're told, and uh, Peter tells us, that the scriptures were written by the holy men of old as they were moved upon, carried along by the Holy Spirit. So the activity of the Holy Spirit runs throughout the Bible. We yes. see it manifesting in prophecy and miracles and, yes. and all of these things. This is the power of God. This is yes. not something different. Yes. But the, the, the infilling or the, the baptism, the immersion in the Spirit is a completely new level yes. of, of the, the anointing taking hold of a person in a what we would call a, a constitutional way, yes. meaning that it is reconstituting, it is regenerating somebody yeah. from within, not just moving upon them for a particular purpose. So that's how we, we can once again harmonize that the Holy Spirit moved on men of old. Yes. John the Baptist was right. filled with the Holy Spirit right. in, in one sense, and yet um, we're also born again. He was not born again, and yeah. we're and again we're told in Hebrews that all of these in the Old Testament died not having received the yes. promise. Yeah, and when Jesus speaks about John the Baptist, he makes birth the pivotal factor in what differentiates him from us who are mm -hmm. in the kingdom. He says, among all those born of women, which is everybody, there is none greater except than John the Baptist. But the least in the kingdom of God is greater than he making the question of whether you've entered this kingdom, he described to Nicodemus, a question of whether you were just born of woman or whether you've also been born of the Spirit. Yeah. And he says, it says in, in, uh, in Matthew 1, 21, it says that the, the angel whispered to Joseph and said, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife because that which in, is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus was conceived, born of the Holy Spirit. But was he a long line of people who had been born in this, of the Spirit, like Abraham, David, John the Baptist? Or was he the first to be born as, as, as of the Spirit? Romans 8 and Hebrews 6 tells us that he was the firstborn of many brethren. So the manner of his birth as a son born of the Spirit was unprecedented in history. But he was the firstborn of many brethren that he might bring many sons to glory, which is to the Spirit of God. I'm also thinking while we're on the topic of, uh, of John 7, where Jesus yes. stands up on the last and greatest day of the feast and, and says, if anyone will come to me, you know, out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And John's commentary is very insightful there because he, he says, thus he spoke of the Holy Spirit that those who believed in him, as the scriptures have said, would receive. Yes. For it had not yet come upon any of them because uh, Jesus had not yet been glorified. glorified. So John indicates that this is a prophecy of something that would happen. Yes. According to people, it would happen to those, all those who believed in him, as the scriptures had said. Yes. This was going to take place. Yes. So it's another confirmation that this is a new thing. Right. That has not happened before the glorification of Christ. Of course, that's what Isaiah and Ezekiel both said. I will do a new thing. I will pour out my spirit on all oh. flesh. So, yeah, that's an important one for those who say that they received the spirit. The apostles received the spirit when Jesus breathed on them. Jesus, they did not receive it then. Jesus breathed on them, symbolically releasing it with this symbol of, of the breath, the wind of God. But that breath turned into a mighty rushing wind on the day they were filled. But we know that that is not when they were filled, when, when, when he breathed, because John says, yeah. writing long after both events, the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So anything that was given prior to glorification was not the outpouring of the Spirit. The outpouring of the Spirit is what occurred on the day of Pentecost, and it was unprecedented in human existence. So when we hear Jesus say to them as he breathed on them, receive the Holy Spirit, this is really more of a, a command. command. This yes. is more of a, uh, an imploring that they, this is the next step, which yes. is in keeping with all the other ends of the gospel where yes. he's telling them, go to Jerusalem and wait till you receive power. He's speaking of the baptism of the Spirit. So this is all part of Jesus pointing them towards what's next. Amen. The next one says, why does it seem to take some people so long to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. 
Paul says that we receive the, that we are born of the Spirit by faith. So faith is not the experience of rebirth. It is the means by which we receive rebirth. So it's the road that gets us there. It's not the destination. A lot of people have confused that and made it pretended that having faith is receiving the Spirit. We, we know that that is an unbiblical construct that we might address here in a minute. But why does it take so long? Because it takes time to break down faith in self and build up faith in God. The, the uh, New Testament writer Jude says, build yourself up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. So to pray in the Holy Spirit is, is, is an expression of great faith. And faith doesn't come by, by, by uh, merely seeking it. Faith comes by hearing the word of God. And so when someone hears the promise and receives it with all their heart, and, and they know this is for them, and they know God is granting them this grace to receive his spirit, they're going to receive it immediately. But that may take a while to break down the edifice, the, the wreckage, the, the clutter of old doctrines and old confusions from Scripture. Clear that out of the way. It took the apostles until the day of Pentecost, which was what? About 50 days. Uh, for them to receive it. So it's like a birth. It may take you a couple months. It may take you a couple years. That doesn't matter. As long as you're walking by faith and you keep walking by faith, you're going to arrive at this moment of exceeding faith when God's going to give you what he promised through faith. I think the, you know, there are some, there's a passage in Acts that says, I think it's Acts 5, where it says he gives the Holy Spirit to those who obey him. Mm -hmm. You know, and there are there can be multiple reasons where that block why that blockage might be in place, but uh, some of them may be false understandings and things like that that are just ideas in our own minds about what's supposed to happen or how that that just pose barriers. Mm -hmm. But there can also be simply matters in our own heart that we're not willing to, to deal with yet. Mm -hmm. And I don't believe the Lord gives us the Holy Spirit to certify that we are now perfect and don't have any more needs. No. Um, as the saying goes, you don't get good to get God, you get God to get good. Yes. <laughs> the Holy Spirit is our aid to help us overcome those things. So it's not like God is waiting until we've got every, all our you know, ducks in a row. Yeah. At the same time, if there are things that we're holding on to in our own hearts where we say, well, you know, I, I really want God to give me the Holy Spirit, but I'm not sure I'm willing to be honest about this part yet, or I'm not sure I'm willing to give up that to follow Jesus or whatever. The Lord is a jealous God. He's not, he's not inclined to occupy space that where we're reserving pockets unto ourselves. So sometimes that too is a process of repentance yes. that is unfolding. And repentance has, has layers. They yes. may be very you know, obvious personal issues that we've got to deal with. They can also be layers of our past or our inherited understandings or whatever, the, the sins of our fathers, so to speak, that, yeah. that we're working our way through yeah. um, as we're reaching towards God. Yeah. But we, we would feel that the scriptures make plain that we're not, we're not saved only by receiving the Holy Spirit. No. We're saved by faith. Yes. And that faith is made, is the genuineness of that faith is revealed by our willingness to walk in obedience to the truth that has been revealed to us. So if we're in that process, you know, Paul encounters the, the Ephesians in, in Acts 19 that haven't even really heard about the Holy Spirit before. Right. So right. why was it taking them a while? Because they hadn't even heard of it. <laughs> but yeah. presumably, once people hear of it, if you're in the, in the birth process, so to speak, yeah. that, that, can, that can be a while. So I, sometimes uh, we believe life begins at conception, right? Life doesn't begin at, at birth. Life begins at conception, but then there's a process of gestation and growth and that may be happening in somebody's life in a sense that the baby doesn't even know that he's going to be born yeah. yet. He is yeah. not aware that, that this is going to become acute and this big transition is going to happen. That might be more similar to someone who doesn't even have understanding of what the Holy Spirit is or that, or that God would give it in the way prescribed in the Bible. And, but God understands that and yes. He's bearing with us as that light will unfold. Yeah. 
Uh, and then you may get to the point where you do understand it and you do realize something's happening. You're yes. feeling the contractions happening, but yes. babies aren't born on the first contraction. Yeah. So you may be in process, even if you're in prayer, explicitly seeking the Holy Spirit and, and you're praying, God, please fill me. Why isn't this happening? That can be a little bit like a mother saying, um, I was ready to push for this baby and I pushed and it didn't happen. Why isn't this happening? Yeah. And, and there may be multiple reasons for, for why the womb isn't completely open yet or how yeah. much more pressing may be necessary to give the sacrifice that will be blessed with the birth. Um, there could be multiple reasons, but we shouldn't, we shouldn't lose heart that we had a contraction and there was no baby. No. My wife is a midwife and she would tell you that every contraction is producing something. Amen. So every time you feel that movement of the Lord and you're praying again and you feel the nearness of God, you're getting closer to the birth. It's, yes. all, it's all working together. And if we don't lose heart, God will be faithful to His promise every single time. Amen. And there's a day when we're going to seek Him with all our heart. And we're going to have the grace from Him to even do that. And in the day we seek Him with all our hearts, He says, you will find me. So. I was with Brother Randy in Mexico here uh, a couple weeks ago, um, and we were speaking with a group of people there. Many of them are seeking the baptism of the Spirit, and uh, he shared something that I've found simple and, and helpful. He said, you know, there's only one thing that can truly prevent you from receiving the Holy Spirit, and that's if you give up. Amen. <laughs> he said, if you just don't give up, Amen. you're going to receive it. Amen. It's a promise from God you're going to receive it. Well, Jesus says, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? So let's never give up. Almost all believers are taught and convinced that the day they believed and prayed a prayer, repeating what the preacher prayed, they received the Holy Spirit. Do you know who started that doctrine and when historically did it begin? We send a big hug from Argentina. We feel very loved and discipled. Thank you. Well, we send you a big hug back from Texas. We love you guys in Argentina. So when did this doctrine begin? I guess, you know, going back um, as early as the 400s, uh, Augustine of Hippo is scoffing at the idea that people still receive the Holy Spirit and speak with tongues. So we know that the apostles said the church was going to fall into darkness, and they, we know that they said ravenous wolves were going to enter and lead the flock astray. And we, we believe that the Constantinian synthesis, when the church married the Roman state at the time of Constantine, uh, the, early 12, uh, the early 300s, that that evidences that the darkness had arrived. It doesn't mean there was no positive leaven still working in the church uh, or among Christians, but the church that Jesus and the apostles had built was gone. And this bride was marrying a foreign husband, specifically the Roman state. And so we believe that the gifts of the Spirit were replaced with the mind and principles and governments of men. And only in, in later years, well, throughout that time, I guess, people started rationalizing the absence of the Spirit mm -hmm. and saying, oh, well, you receive it when you get the sprinkling. And others said you receive it because it was declared. And others said you received it when you first believed. And I think it's an evangelical model that, that really stressed that you receive the Spirit when you believed. And, uh, and they borrow that from confusion over scriptures that show that we receive the Spirit by faith and assume that having faith is receiving the Spirit. Mm -hmm. Um, instead of saying, you know, Jesus says you're healed by faith. So if I, I have faith, therefore I'm healed? No. Faith is the medium through which you're going to relate to this promise. But it's not the promise itself. It's the way you get it. But they confuse that. And I think it's really an apologetic for, for the loss yep. that had occurred in the church. And I, don't, I think that's probably been happening since the, since the Spirit stopped being active in the church, which would have been the late 200s. Yeah. There has to be some reason for why there's no power anymore. And so they replace it with things like, well, now we have the written word. Yeah. You know, and they'll pick passages like uh, where the there are times they will cease and all that. You know, the perfect has come and that which is in part was done away with. It's convenient to explain the absence of God's supernatural working 
by uh, the presence of something like the Bible or, or uh, you know, the, the bishopric set yeah. up and organized by Roman yeah. uh, standards and things like that. Because those are, these are things that we can touch and feel and handle and kind of <laughs> manipulate ourselves. Yeah. But it's very difficult to manufacture supernatural phenomena. Yeah. You know? it, yeah. it just doesn't happen. So uh, I think we ought to be wary anytime somebody is trying to reason away manifestations of God by saying that was imperfect and now that we have the perfect we don't really need God's actual presence yeah. manifesting itself in, in the world. Yeah, And the idea that the apostles were somehow an immature expression of the church but now we've improved to a more mature should be self-evidently foolish to any serious Christian. None of us look at the the power of God or the holiness and fruit of the New Testament and say, well, someday they're going to catch up to us. We all look and say, God, help me to be more like that. So it's self-evidently stupid to act like they were the immature and we are the perfect. That's, that's ridiculous. When Paul says, when the perfect has come, he's speaking of heaven. He's speaking of the same thing that John is speaking of when he says that we do not, it does not yet appear what we shall be like but when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. That is the exact same idea that Paul is putting forth in 1 Corinthians uh, 12, uh, 14, when he says, no, I mean 13, when he says, uh, now we see in a glass dimly. We don't see it as it's supposed to be. But, when, but then we, we will see face to face. Mm -hmm. And he says that tongues will cease. He says that prophecy will cease. And dishonest interpreters like to focus on those two because those are the scary gifts that make the flesh uncomfortable. But he also says knowledge will cease. <laughs> so don't even talk to us about what's going to cease because that's a bit of knowledge that's supposed to have already ceased. It's bizarre. And the only way, the only way these things are going to cease is if we are in heaven with the Lord, we are not. And those gifts of the Spirit are going to continue to work or should continue to work in the body until we get to heaven. Yeah. So in more recent times, we see maybe the more popular uh, evangelical versions of this, where yeah. we're no longer seeking uh, conversions, where people's lives change. Mm -hmm. We're just seeking a decision for Christ. Right. And we call that a conversion. Right. We call that a new convert, because somebody has accepted Jesus into their, into their heart which is not really a scriptural term in the first place. No. Show me in the Bible where it says that we're saved by accepting Jesus into our heart, like we have to approve of Him. We see places in, in turn where it says the opposite. Right, and even the idea of accepting Jesus is one thing. If you see that now the Lord is the Spirit and the second Adam became a life-giving Spirit, I can conscience that. But accepting, what they're really saying when they accept Jesus is they're saying they accept truths about Jesus. That's right. So when he says, as many as received him, to them he gave the power, that's speaking yeah. of the Spirit. He says, to those who were born, not of the will of flesh, but born of God. But that's not, that's not receiving Jesus. That, that's receiving Jesus. That's receiving the Spirit. But when they say, receive Jesus into your heart, or accept Jesus into your heart, they're really saying, accept truths or facts about Jesus. It's not Jesus. It's not actually the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not the exousia to become children of God. And it may be very well-intentioned. Yeah. And it may be a, a very, step in a the right direction. Step. It may yeah. be somebody who doesn't even know about Jesus, and they, they feel something in the story, and they believe that it's true, and they, want to, they see that He died for their sins. And Amen. There's nothing wrong with that. No. But to make that your conversion moment, when the, that supposedly the Spirit of God has filled your life and revolutionized you, but you don't even know that anything happened. Right. You just heard a story about Jesus. Right. That 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 is to sell the gospel very short. Yes, you know that's to and and why why would we do that? Yeah. Well, unfortunately, I think one reason is because it's a much easier sell. Yeah, and if you're an evangelist, that so this idea is is piloted by people like Billy Sunday. Yeah, and some of these mass evangelists who have this incredible success. You know, eight hundred decisions for Christ tonight. Yeah, what did that decision look like? Well. With every eye closed and every head bowed, you know, raise your hand if you accept Christ. Yeah. You know, hundreds of hundreds of converts tonight. Yeah. You know, or, or maybe you even had to uh, walk the aisle, or maybe you sign the the card that says I'm I'm now a Christian or a member of this church. 
did those people continue in the faith? The record is abysmal that they do not. And so we see, although there could be genuine steps that that happen in in some fashion like that, we think that there's a tragedy unfolding when we see that this is presented to people as, as that was it. Yeah. That was it. Now you're now you're a believer. Now you're a Christian. Go to the church of your choice, and that's it. It's selling people short, yeah. and then they they they're still slaves to sin. They don't really have power in their lives. Their relationships are in tatters. Right. And but we've led them to believe that that's all done. Right. And you don't even have to do anything else because Christ did it all for you. And it's it just yields very bad fruit. It does. And the Bible does not allow for the notion that belief is receiving Christ as in receiving the Holy Spirit. Because Peter says, Paul says rather in, in uh, Acts 19, he asks the Ephesus believers, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? That is a nonsensical question for those who are taught that merely reciting a prayer and merely believing is receiving. But Paul asks it, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And their answer is no. Mm-hmm. And so he prays for them, lays hands on them, and they receive the Holy Spirit. It explicitly says they spoke with other tongues and prophesied, Acts 19.5. So this is the same dynamic that's at place, that's at work in uh, Acts 8, when is it Philip who's mm-hmm. sent to Samaria, who goes to Samaria, and he begins to bring the gospel, and, and people are healed, and they're baptized, And it says they had been baptized and they had believed on the Lord Jesus, but the Holy Spirit had come on none of them. Yeah. So this is just biblically impossible. I don't care what loops you make around Scripture. It doesn't make any sense. Believing, that is faith, is the means for receiving the Spirit. It is not the substance of receiving it. It's like saying, you take this road to get to Cafe Homestead, and me going and standing out on the road and saying, this is Cafe Homestead. No, this isn't. This is how you get there. (laughs) Faith is how you get to the power of the infilling of the Holy Spirit. Belief, that's what that is. But it's not itself the experience that God has for all of us. And it's it's notable that, you know, uh, these people in Acts 8 who have both believed and been baptized were told explicitly but the Spirit hasn't come. Well, when, when Peter and John come down and lay hands on them and they begin to receive the Holy Spirit, we see this character, Simon, yes. who has, you know, he was the he was the witch doctor, so to speak, the sorcerer yeah. who had amazed people with his dark powers. Yeah. But it said that he himself had believed and been baptized, and yet when he sees people filled with the Holy Spirit, it says that he desired to have this power for himself. Yeah. And he's a little off base in his desire. He wants to buy it with money. <laughs> but it's remarkable to consider that he had seen Philip perform miracles. He'd yeah, seen paralytic Philip, healed. He'd seen people baptized. He'd seen people change their way of life and come to God and, and all of this. And yet uh, he doesn't ask to buy that. But something so powerful is happening, we, we could presume, that when they receive the Holy Spirit, he says... I gotta have this. Yes. You know, let me. What what price is it that I could lay my hands on people and they would receive the Holy Spirit? And Peter has to rebuke him. I'm just saying, apparently, what's happening in this infilling is more remarkable yeah. than all of the things that have happened before, yeah. including miracles. Yeah. And we don't have to guess what's happened because it's already been clearly shown in the other ex- examples and acts that what happens is people are overcome by the Spirit of God and begin to speak in unknown tongues as the Spirit of God gives them utterance. If the church were just, you know, bloated with extra power and none of us had need for more of God's grace, we could find doctrines that explain away the need for God's anointing as more compelling. But when people are emaciated and weak and powerless and lost, lose victory in their lives, we don't need to try to figure out ways to get out of a promise that we will receive power. We need to try to figure out how to receive that promise, knowing that that promise is for us and for our children and for all who are far off, even us today. Amen. Okay. You have more there? Well, you have time for something about Billy Sunday? Yeah, yeah. I just thought of this because we were talking about him, but I did a little research into Billy Sunday's um, uh, 
life and fruit yes. one time, and I put together a couple of paragraphs about what happened here. But um, and this is not to disparage the good that he might have done for some people. It's just to point out that this is a, a very truncated version of yeah. the gospel. Yeah. And l listen, listen to this if you've got a minute here. The long-term fruit in Billy Sunday's natural family reveals remarkable parallels to the spiritual fruit of his evangelistic techniques. His four children were mostly raised by a hired nanny so that his wife, Nell, could accompany him on the evangelistic trail and organize his campaigns. His own sons became known for committing the very sins he preached against practically every night. George, who contracted a venereal disease from his dissolute lifestyle, had to be bailed out of financial ruin by his wealthy father after losing everything in wildly speculative real estate endeavors. Billy Jr. was drinking, dancing, committing adultery, and sometimes landing in jail, even while playing the piano on his father's evangelistic team. In his heyday, Sunday would often collect as much money in one day as the average American made in a year. But by the end of his life, almost all of his fortune had been spent paying off the lawyers who sued his sons, helping to support his destitute grandchildren, and paying blackmail to several women to keep his son's escapades quiet. His only daughter died at 43 of what seems to have been multiple sclerosis. All three of his sons died violent deaths. George committed suicide by jumping from an apartment window. Billy Jr. was killed in a car crash after a night of partying, and Paul died in an airplane crash. Sunday's four children contracted nine marriages altogether, but produced only three grandchildren. The three grandchildren, in turn, had five marriages, but produced only one great-grandchild, Marquis Ashley Sunday. Marquis died childless, murdered by his lover in 1982. So it was that by 50 years after his own death, Billy Sunday had no known living descendants. Again, paralleling the results of his spiritual descendants, it was hardly indicative of the fruit that remains that Jesus said his disciples were appointed to bear. Hmm. Cautionary tale yeah. for easy believism. Yeah. Hmm. That's sad. Well, the next question um, is, Hello, I would like to know what the following passage of Scripture is referring to, and they're referencing Hebrews 10, 26 through 29. Now, we've discussed this um, in a previous discussion, but um, and so we can reference that here. We can link to that here. Maybe we'll spend less time on it and then circle to that other question. Um, so looking at the book of Hebrews broadly, and I'll try to be as concise as possible, I would say this is almost undoubtedly the Apostle Paul. When I read Clement of Rome and I hear that he says, as the Apostle Paul says, and then quotes the book of Hebrews, I find that even more compelling. But whoever the writer of Hebrews is, the, this is a congregation of, of, of Jewish people, uh, predominantly Jewish people, who have received the Lord Jesus and have come into the new and living way. And yet, at that time, Christianity was an unauthorized religion in the eyes of the Roman state, whereas Judaism achieved a licensed status in the eyes of the Roman state. So when you became a Christian, you became an outlaw. And, and then there was sanctioned persecution from uh, Roman citizens and Roman governors and the Roman state itself toward Christians because of their outlaw status. So Christians are, this, this Jewish congregation is suffering persecution. They're, they're, they're losing their property, he says. They're, they're going through hardship. They're, 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 they're in the tribulation. And the apostle Paul, likely the writer of Hebrews, is wanting to, to say something to these people. He's wanting to, one, show them that God has a redemptive value and purpose behind the things that they suffer. So that's probably the biggest concern, the biggest theme of the book of Hebrews, is that God has value in your pain. He can use it for training. He can use it for discipleship. 
And then the other thing is, is he's saying, don't go back. Don't go back to the old thing. Even though it's a licensed religion, you can't carry with you what you've experienced in Christianity as you go back to the synagogue and pretend that everything's okay. To be received back in the synagogue, the custom would have required them to disavow Yeshua. They would have had to swear off any belief in God. And so there was this tension that he's trying to resolve. And what he's writing here is he's saying that he says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Help each other, guys. Stay alive. Keep the church alive. Not forsaking our own assembling together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see that day drawing near. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses without mercy, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who says, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall in the hands of the, of the living God. But remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. You showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what has been promised. And he goes on, and this continues through chapter 12, and so on and so forth. What he's saying is, you can't abandon your walk of faith and willfully go back to sin and expect that the old sacrifices, another sacrifice remains, the sacrifices of the old covenant. He's not saying that if you sin willfully, you can't come back to repentance. That violates how Jesus explicitly enumerates the only sin that cannot be forgiven. So willful sin is not the unforgivable sin, but you're not saved while you're in it. You have to get out of that willful sin and get back into the walk of faith or else you going and, and offering a turtle dove is just not going to cut it because he has offered a sacrifice once for all and this entails that he has set aside the old covenant. Both of these are quotes from this same book. So that's how, we, that's how I would explain it in brief. Does that seem? Yeah. Okay, so again, we can put a link to the other discussion where we worked over this at greater length. Uh, somebody can put that in the link below. I think you just right where you stopped, he's really saying the same thing, where he says, uh, now the just shall live by faith in yep. verse 38, yep. but if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition. That's hell. That's being, that's being lost. Yeah. But of those who believe unto the saving of the soul. He's Amen. saying this is a work in process. Amen. And if you, if you stop, if, you're, if you consciously decide, I'm not, whether it's a sin of commission or a sin of omission, yeah. I'm not walking, yeah. I'm not going, I'm yeah. shrinking back. Yeah. Sorry, you're yeah. lost. Yeah. You're headed towards perdition yeah. until you get back on the path. I think the NIV, one translation certainly says, we are not of those who draw back unto perdition, but those who press on to the saving of the soul. Yeah. And, and then, of course, the next verse is the, the Hebrews 11 chapter, yeah. heroes of faith. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. By it, the men of old gained approval. That's what he wants us to continue in the faith continue in the journey and not imagine that we can go back to what we knew before. We can go back to a lesser form of light. We can draw back into perdition and not, not threaten our eternal soul. 
the implications for the idea of eternal security or once saved always saved are rather obvious to me this is and there's ingenious ways that they try to get around this by saying he's just saying it's impossible to point out that it never happens <laughs> that's not that's not what the most no. parsimonious reading of this would indicate no. but and because he's he's talking about that we can fall away who have been under the blood of the covenant, who have been, been sanctified, who have been enlightened, who have Tasted known of the, the spirit good life of, to come. of grace, and so on and so forth. You know, the powers of the Holy Spirit, he says in another place, yeah. uh, in the parallel in chapter 6. six. Yeah. But um, So anyway, what this does definitely do is yes. eradicate the idea that it's impossible to begin and not finish. Right. You can begin and get off track and go to perdition. Yes. And in fact, I think that if we interpret this as the unforgivable sin, that means that drawing back in faith is not the risk, only committing the unforgivable sin is the risk. But if we yeah. take this in context, what he's really saying is that you've got to continue. You've got to walk because faith is not static. Faith is a progressive journey. In the Hebrews 6 chapter, which a lot of people re reference, he says, it is impossible to renew them to repentance. And a lot of translations say, since they crucify afresh the Son of God and put him to an open shame. That's a bad translation. The word's not even there. The best translation is from the New American Standard or the Amplified Literal. The New American Standard in the literal, it's while they crucify afresh. He's saying you can't, you can't renew them to their status of salvation, repentance, while they're still doing their sins. They're, they're those, those children of Billy Sunday we're just talking about. They're not secure. They're not saved while they're still at work in that. So, again, it's, it's all pointing toward don't stop. It's not over. You can't have eternal security and go back to the synagogue just because it's gotten hot in persecution. Amen. The next one is a big question, and we may want to save this uh, for another um, another discussion. But we have a maybe 15 minutes. Uh, it is: Do you guys believe in the seven-year tribulation as described in Revelations, and that it will last a literal seven years, or is that metaphorical? For starters, uh, and maybe this is what prompts the question. There are a lot of views on this, yes. um, and it might be worth noting that, as far as I'm aware, there's not a seven-year tribulation described in Revelation. That is deduced by various uh, projections of this many months and this many weeks and putting this together, but there's not even a place in Revelation that says there will be a tribulation for seven years. So people debate whether the first three and a half years is actually the tribulation or only the second three and a half years is actually the tri tribulation. and. I think, and then we're, we're referring back to Daniel, and, and I do think there's prophetic overlap, a lot of prophetic yeah. overlap there, but they refer back to Daniel, and it's the last, this corresponds to this, the last week of the 70 weeks, and a lot of effort is put into trying to calendarize, that's right. probably not even a word, uh, but trying to, to get all this stuff worked out yeah. so that we can figure out uh, literal time frames. And to me, I'm not going to go so far as to say that there's no value ever in understanding literal time frames, but in some of this, I think I fear that it tends to obscure the meaning of what's being said. Yeah. And what we can say about the book of Revelation is that the whole book is incredibly symbolic. There yeah. are all kinds of things that cannot really be taken literally. Yeah. And when we understand that with the Lord, a day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as a day. Right. It's not hard to contemplate the possibility that even when it says so and so many weeks or so and so many months, that he's not necessarily talking to us about that. Right. Even that the idea of seven years can, the number seven throughout the Bible is a, is a term that's used to indicate a wholeness or a completion when these yeah. days are complete. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't think, I don't see a lot of, I don't see a lot of benefit to our lives in trying to figure out exact time frames on this stuff. Right. And I don't see a lot of great fruit in general in the lives of people who spend all their time trying to figure this stuff out. In fact, it seems to, as a kid, I remember wanting to understand when, did, when does the seven years start? And if we know that, then 
we know when it ends. And if we know when it ends, then Jesus is no longer speaking the truth when he says no one knows the hour, not even the sun. Mm -hmm. So if we don't know when it, when it ends, because we don't know when it starts, then it becomes irrelevant to us, uh, the whole concept of seven years. So even if there is such a thing as a seven years, it's hard to imagine how God intends to benefit us in some sort of numerical capacity uh, from that knowledge. It seems like that's yeah. either symbolic or irrelevant for our, for our purposes. <laughs> so yeah, um, we believe that there will be a complete tribulation. And we believe that the church is going to go through that tribulation. But, um, yeah, it would be more from Daniel than from Revelations that people derive that concept. And there's certainly overlap, but we, we, we view prophecy as a continuum where it is increasing and unfolding on an ever-expanding level of greater and greater fulfillment. And so there are things that are spoken of in the book of Daniel or in Matthew 24 that are realized and fulfilled in, on the first level in 70 AD, or in Daniel's case, under Antiochus Epiphanes. But they're not realized in the ultimate level until the end times, and Scripture would, would prove that. So people who say, Does, is Jesus in Matthew 24 referring to the sacking of Jerusalem by Titus and Hadrian, or, or is he referring to the end times? And we answer, yes, <laughs> it's both. And so a lot of prophecy is that way, and for that reason, it can include specificity like seven years in Daniel that may not apply to the final tribulation uh, of the end times, or it may apply on some metaphorical, or, or it may even be literal. Not to mention that tribulation has been happening for 2,000 years right. to believers from the time of the New Testament all the way through until modern times that there are people going through tribulation. So setting off this great tribulation that's right. going to happen at the end, I think there's merit in understanding yeah. that things are going to get worse. Yeah. Um, so I think that that's important, but it may be more immediately practically important to understand how we deal with tribulation that's right in front of us yeah. and to not ignore the fact that um, it could happen to any of us at, at any time yeah. instead of banking on some uh, doctrine that would exempt us yeah. uh, from that or put it off to some projected time in the future. Those who live godly will suffer persecution. So, um, And he says, those who marry will have much tribulation. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that note, um, I think that we answered everything that came in. Hopefully this was edifying to you. Feel free to post a comment or uh, send your question in for next week. God bless you. Lord willing, you'll see us next time. Mm -hmm.